Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is the man who was first called up to the major leagues in 1998 at the age of 26 in the middle of one of the Yankees' most dominant seasons. After praying briefly in April, he will be forever remembered by Yankee fans for his September to remember as he had 10 home runs, including three grand slams, a record for major league rookies that stood until it was broken by Alexi Ramirez in 2008. Having accomplished a feat in only 67 at-bats earned him a spot on the Yankees' postseason roster. He earned the nickname of Roy Hobbs in reference to the natural because he hit many home runs and was older than most rookies when brought up to the majors. It is a thrill to welcome three-time World Series champion, the former New York Yankee as well as New York Met, and the current manager of the Nexon Heroes Baseball Club, Shane Spencer, to WLIA Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Shane. How you guys doing? We're doing good. You know, you start out as a star athlete at Granite Hills, both in football, where you were running back, as well as an all-league linebacker for Coach Jim Mann, as a star pitcher and one of the best hitters for Coach Gordy Thompson. At any point during high school, did you think a career in pro sports was possible? And what was the point where you thought baseball was your number one option over football? Uh, well, actually, I never even thought about baseball. It was all about football. Even since, like, young age and Pop Warner, it was all about football. I, I told people I was going to play in the NFL, and that was my goal. Um, what was it a dream? Maybe. Uh, but when um, my junior year uh, at Brian Giles got drafted, and uh, I got to see, you know, he's a great player, and I got to see how he did things, and I got drafted kind of late because I was going to go play football, and um, it was the Yankees, and I hated the Yankees because I'm a Padre guy, Tony Quinn all the way, and I was like, why the Yankees? (laughs) But then when you start thinking about it, it's like, okay, well, if you're going to get drafted by somebody, that's it's either like the Yankees and Dodgers, the two teams I hate, so... Um, after negotiations, uh, I thought like more about like longevity, about sports and career, and and I chose baseball, and it was a long, hard road for me. It's so interesting that you mentioned Brian Giles because Granite Hills is not what you would call a baseball powerhouse when it comes to players being drafted into the majors. Prior to you, only Brian Giles and Mike Reinback were selected. Um, you know, how did Tim Schmidt, the Yankee scout? who signed you as a 28th round draft pick, discover you, and were you even aware of the fact that you were being scouted in high school? Uh, well, I knew I was being scouted. I mean, you always see scouts in the, the area that I'm in for baseball in San Diego. Obviously, it's a, it's a powerhouse. And actually, we had, a, at one time in the big league, we had five guys from my high school in the big league. So, we do. It's a, it's a really good school. It's um, very good baseball, wrestling, and, and like, water sports, you know, like water polo, stuff like that. But um, football's not that great. Um, Tim, Tim, when he actually contacted me, he said, hey, this is Tim Smith of the Yankees. We're just interested if you're, if, you're, if you're interested in playing baseball. And I was like, the Yankees, okay, whatever. <laughs> and then he came and I met him, and I, I still talk to him, you know, yearly. And uh, he, um, he just said, he goes, you know, I said, I, why were you even looking at me? He goes, the Yankees draft athletes. That's what they do. And then they, if the guys that they can get to actually do what they want, then hopefully that, that works out. And I think there's only a few teams at the time that are doing stuff like that. I think the Indians, Dodgers, 
Braves and Yankees were like maybe Expos. So maybe like five teams, they would draft athletes and, and have a bigger staff and try to groom into baseball players. And that's, that's what happened. And um, all those that were very you know, it's interesting because you head to the Gulf Coast Yankees. You're managed by the current Mets third base coach, Glenn Sherlock. Your teammates included a 16-year-old Ricky Lede, a 19-year-old Carl Everett, a 20-year-old Mariano Rivera. You struggled that season batting 184. How tough was it from dominating at the high school level to struggling your first year in pro? And who helped you out the most that first year? I, was, I wouldn't say uh, I dominated in high school. Most guys hit like 450 to 500 in high school, and I hit like, I don't know, 340 or 350. So I, I, wasn't, I definitely wasn't dominating. Um, you certainly weren't hitting 184, I, though, Shane. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, you know what, though? My 184 was probably one, I was probably one of the better hitters on the team besides like Carl Everett and a couple other guys. I mean, that's how we were, we were so overmatched. It seemed like we had college pitchers. Latin pitchers, and uh, hitting was just so far behind. I mean, I think you might have to go back and look at Chipper Jones' stats that year because he was pretty terrible. He might have been one of the worst players in that league, and he's a Hall of Famer now. So it was just one of those years where the pitching was so good. I mean, I was overmatched, completely overmatched. I didn't know what a right-handed changeup was. I, didn't, I just never seen those kind of things, and I was, I was pretty much dominated. I actually wanted to go back and play football, and uh, actually, Brian Giles, who's not the smartest guy in the world, I promise you, he, uh, he actually talked me out of it. And uh, he said, no, you learned a lot this year. I promise you, if you go one spring training, you'll see what they're talking about, and you'll develop. And, and I listened to him, and, and I was I was decent after that, so... You continue up the ladder in the Yankees to only author of the New York Penn League and then Greensboro of the South Atlantic League, where you have better numbers. Your teammates with Jorge Basada, Andy Pettit, and 18-year-old Derek Jeter. Being in that Yankee system and having those three guys as teammates, could you sense you know, what was going to start happening up at the major league level with this much talent in the minors? No. I, I mean, to be honest, no. Maybe as a outfielder, a second DH. Uh, you see these guys. Um, at, out of those guys that I came up with, Mariano was special, and Andy Pettit was was special. Um, Jeter, you could see the talent. He was just so raw. Um, but then it just like I swear, when he was like twenty, it just clicked. And it, you know, he's obviously a superior athlete, but. Um, just like. I think you can that time. If you do, then you get caught, you get trapped, and you might just a lot of guys fail that way. I, that was one of the good things about coming up with the Yankees is that even the coaches never ever talked about this is what you got to do to get the big leagues. It was always about how can we get better that day, and that's the way it was, and that's kind of how I teach now too. Speaking to three-time world champion Shane Spencer, 1995, you get a chance to play for Buck Showalter as your single-A teammates, left-handed pitcher Al Drumheller, outfielder Richard Barnwell, and yourself, along with five more players from the minors, are brought in as replacement players during spring training in the 1994 Major League Baseball strike. You're 23 years old at the time. I think if I'm correct, single-A salaries back then were about $1,200 a month. The Yankees offered you $3,000 a month to be a replacement player. What was the thought process, and was it a tough choice for you at that point in your career? It was, I actually I, I had no choice. Um, they asked me before Christmas in the offseason. I said no. They asked me before spring training. I said no. They asked me during spring training. I said no. 
and towards the end of spring training, they told me they're going to release me if I don't go. So I wasn't even represented. I had the, the players union didn't really really wasn't prepared for something like that. Um, those other guys crossed way before me. I was forced to cross. Um, it ended up working out for me, but I never once was going to do it. I was an A ball. Who cares? You know, to go. I don't even know who Buck Walter was. So um, I, had, you know, when I got to the big leagues, I had to sit down on the plane with like Chili Davis, David Cohn, Jeff Nelson, David Wells, those guys, Bernie Williams, and I had to, I had to tell my story. And you know, you almost get down in tears because you got these guys that are your teammates. They look down on you because you did something, but they don't realize really what the story that happened. And um, I never crossed. I was forced to. It was like for a few days only. And um, it is what it is. I can't change it. I, I talk about it all the time. I, I do speeches with people and tell them, you know, I talk to young players, tell them, like, listen, you know, I'm all for the union. I, I'm all for it, even though I'm not part of it. I'm 100% behind the union. They do the right thing. And what happened to me is just, it is what it is. I have no problems with it. So it's, it's A.J. Kardashian. After you told the story and you sat down and you had the, the inquisition, as it were, <laughs> how long did it take for them to say, to understand and say, okay, did they do it right away? Did they say, well, okay, show us for a little bit. How long did it take for you to get back, get into their good graces? Uh, uh, I think everybody's a little bit different. Um, I'm really good friends with Jeff Nelson now, and, uh, I would think that he was the hardest on me. Um, he just, you know, he was a firm believer of what the union was about, and he was really hard on me. He wasn't, I wouldn't say he was a jerk or nothing. He just uh, wasn't, like, part of, like, his group or whatever. And I, and I totally accept that. No and now we're really good friends. I'm like, listen, I'm here to play baseball. I didn't have anything to do with what happened. Let me prove it. That's it. I'm a good teammate. I'm a good clubhouse guy. And, and then everything's good after that. But you can feel the tension. There's no doubt about it. You feel the tension. And it, and it hurts as a player because even though you didn't do anything wrong, like per se, but it does hurt. It really does. And, and obviously, I mean, if you go back and read the newspaper accounts, you weren't given a choice, like you said. Gene Michael said, we yes. bring you up, and, and that's what you're doing. Um, you go back to the minors. Your power numbers take off, hitting 32 home runs in 96 then 30 and 97. Your previous high in the season had been 18. What changes did you make to increase your power numbers at that point in your career? Um, I, I was starting to hit the ball good. I was, I've always hit the off-speed pitches good. Uh, obviously, we, nobody can hit a slider down and away. It doesn't matter what the reports say. Nobody hits the slider down and away. <laughs> it's if you swing at it or not. And um, when I got MVP of the Florida State League, um, I, the first year I got to play from day one, I was a starter from day one. And uh, that's what they told me. He's like, if you do good, then we're going to keep you. If you don't do good, we're going to release you. And I'm like, wait a minute. I get to play every day from day one? And they're like, yeah, but if you don't do good, I'm like, no, 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 I don't care about that. I get to play every day? That's awesome. Okay, let's go. But the power number is actually um, when I went to AA, Daryl Evans was my hitting coach. And most of the hitters there did not care for him. But Daryl was a pool hitter. And like I was, I was a pull hitter. But he actually taught me how to straighten the ball out instead of hooking it, top spin, hook, whatever. And uh, it, was a, it was a hard process. But um, when it clicked, 
all of a sudden all those doubles or foul ball home runs, they started straightening out. That's when the home runs came. I always squared the ball up. I just never could keep it straight. And so Daryl Levins had a lot to do with that. And then a couple other, um, a couple other hitting coaches after that taught me, taught me how to stay through the ball in the zone. And that's when I started going right center a little bit more, which is oppo for me, which is crazy. And, um, and then everything was fine after that. So it was, a, it was a long process. I wasn't like I just came out of the my mom's womb and started. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was very hard for me. <laughs> so, so nineteen ninety seven, you have thirty four doubles, four triples, thirty homers, but just forty and singles. Like, and like and like five singles. Yeah, like five singles. <laughs> so, so you decide you decide in the off season, you can actually try and get your average up and change it around and, and hit some singles and got a little more, not quite a spray hitter, but more of a spray hitter. So yeah. first of all, how did you do that and? As you've gone ahead, I'm going to jump ahead, Piston Careers. You're teaching hitting now. Which do you think is more important? How do you teach now? Do you teach launch angle, which is popular, or do you teach spray hitting, which is what got you to the major leagues? Oh, well, 97, I did get called up in the playoffs because they told me I couldn't hit for average. Well, <laughs> I, it was the best year I ever had hitting the ball. I just could not get a single. I'd line out the center like twice a game. Uh, Mark Newman even called me at the All-Star break. He goes, you're hitting 202. What's wrong? I'm like, Mark, I can't hit a single. I'm sorry. He goes, well, 202 is not working. I said, Mark, I can't get a single. What do you want me to do? I'm hitting line drives in center field. What do you want me to do? And he's like, well, it's not working. I'm like, okay. Well, I ended up hitting like 300 the second half of the season. Hit 240 or 250. I don't even know what it was. Who cares? But um, they didn't call me up because of that. And I said, okay, I'm going to go play winter ball. And I'm going to prove to them that I can hit 300. And I went down there and just kind of judied the ball around and played pepper with the ball. And it ended up being a great thing for me because I actually learned how to use the bat the right way. And then I went to spring training, and it was great. And the whole year next year was, was phenomenal. But um, as far as teaching, I don't, I don't, I don't teach launch angle. That's, that's, to me, that's a joke. Um, guys that do launch angle are super superior athletes for anybody. I can't teach that in Korea because they're not superior athletes. So it's more about keeping your bat in the zone as long as you can. Um, if you have that great athlete, then maybe you could tweak some things and get that little angle. But, you know, at the King Griffey, these, these are great athletes that can do that. So keep kids or even young pro athletes, I, I it's wrong. That's in my opinion. But um, that's why baseball is got a million strikeouts and a lot of home runs. Yep. It's, uh, I'm so yeah. glad to hear. And you know what? Marlon Anderson, we had him on. He also, right. they, yeah. it's more, you know, teaching what we've learned all our lives so, and what we right. taught. So, so, so we see, see the ball, like hit the ball, make contact. Regeneration back to I that. hope so. I, yeah. I hope that, you know. Make the yeah, game more interesting. Yeah. Wow. Just teach a guy how to bunt. You know, right. <laughs> no one That's... even does a bunt. So every, all those changes and tweaks you make set up for the historic run is from August 7th to September 27th, 1988. You had ton home runs, including three grand slams and a rookie um, record. You did this on a Yankee team that was headed for 114 wins. But when you homered seven times in nine days, eight times in the month, still the most by a Yankee rookie in September, you're the talk of the town on a team that you know was legendary. What is that like, and have you ever experienced any level of success in that such a condensed period of time? And then add to the fact that you're on the biggest stage in the world as far as baseball goes. What was that month like for you? Uh, I mean, it's Looking back on it, I think it was 
it's kind of ridiculous, but like at the time, it really wasn't that big of a deal. I was doing it in AAA. I was, I was having a great year in AAA. I, was, I mean, I had Ricky Day, I had Mike Hole. I mean, you have the three, four, five. We were raking. I mean, then you go up to the big leagues and they're killing people. And I'm in the lineup and I have like Scott Brocious, who's hitting two ninety something. You know, ton of RBIs behind me. Like, who are you going to pitch to? You know, it's like, I got pretty good pitches to hit. You still have to hit them. But I did. I did get good pitches to hit, and I was locked in, and I hit them. Trust me, they make adjustments, and when you don't play all the time, you look like a fool like I did the next year. So it's it's just one of those things that people say, oh, it's a, how did you do that? I'm like, well, I mean, I probably got better pitches than a lot of guys did. That's, it comes down to that. There's no false advertising about it i just but i was hitting the ball the ball did look like a beach ball it was pretty sick you know it's interesting because you always wonder how an athlete you know when he comes up and has such success at, at early in his major league career we, we look at what just happened with jeff mcneil here with the mets right. and right the, the, and you wonder what's going to happen next, next year, year. Yeah. and yeah. mike vale is the other one you think well mike vale as yeah. well but or even kevin moss but yeah when when you have that level of success how difficult is it to deal with the expectations that next season, whether it be from the media or the fans or even the front office, how, how difficult is that to deal with that pressure internally? You know what? Um, the, I, when I look back on it now, the one thing that I regret, and the only thing that I regret, is not being prepared that off season. Um, I did a lot of sign. Everybody... I mean, everybody on that team was flying back to New York from wherever you're at. I'm coming from San Diego. Every other weekend, I'm flying to New York to do signings. And you get caught up in it, and I don't think you get locked into your training. And um, I felt like when I went to spring training, I was behind. And I didn't click towards the end of spring training, and then uh, I just didn't play that much. Really, I didn't. I was just like a spot starter, and I don't know why. I just didn't get to play that much, and I, it showed. And I actually was a little bit jazzy about it, Ben. But my, I was just. I think we lost Shane. You there? This is together. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, now yes. we hear you. But that's better. Uh, yeah. You know, you look at it. You have World Series rings from 98, 99, 2000. You were in right field for the Yankees when Luis Gonzalez got the hit that won the 2001 World Series for Arizona. But it was your throw earlier that postseason that led to Derek Jeter's famous flip play in Oakland. You played an eight postseason series for the Yankees. Personally, which is the most memorable postseason moment, either that you were part of or you witnessed during those Yankee years? I would say there's two. Um, obviously, I'm from San Diego. My first year, rookie year, I played against the Padres. Um, Tony Gwynn's my idol. I caught a ball his first at bat. It, uh, I think it was game three, and uh, I, it was only the second out, and I didn't want to throw it back in. I just want to put it in my pocket. I'm like, this, this, my career is over right now. This is the greatest moment of my life. I, I was so pumped up that I had to throw the ball back in, so I was very disappointed. But uh, that was seriously the best moment. And then... Honestly, watching watching Arizona beat us, which sucked, but that whole nine eleven year was was very tough on everybody. And but to see um, you know a Schilling and a Randy Johnson, you see these guys and and they, they win. And yes, it sucks walking from right field, 
the last out of the year and or but see them celebrating, you know you've gone through that. That sticks in my mind like that's what it's all about. Like these guys have waited their whole life to do this and I got to do it three years in a row. And yeah, it sucks to lose, but those two moments really stick out to me. Now, after your playing career ended, you turned to coaching, first serving as a hitting coach for the Storm, the single-A affiliate of the Padres from 2008, then the hitting coach of the Somerset Patriots of the Atlantic League. What's the most gratifying part of being a hitting coach, and which hitting coach, I think you mentioned it as far as Evans, but what other hitting coaches had a very profound effect on you, and is it gratifying to you when some of these guys that you've worked with make it to the majors? Absolutely. I mean... Every, there's not one hitting coach that had an, an absolute effect on me. It was a lot of little things. Uh, Gary Dinbo was more the get in the cage and let's, okay, let's, let's comfortable. Uh, I just had so many guys that had a little piece and Shane, you there? I think we lost you again. He's in a bad spot. Oh, oh no, right. no, we got you yeah. now. <laughs> Yeah, every little piece of every coach, you just, you hopefully, it connects down the road. I don't think it registers right away. And that's what I try to tell my players now. Like, listen, no matter what I say or what this coach says, you just, you know, you retain it, and then hopefully it connects with you later. We're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to make you the best we can, and then hopefully it all connects and it, it makes you a better player and that's all we're trying to do is make you the best that you can we're not saying you're going to be the big league player we're not saying you're going to be the best player we're just trying to make you the best player that you can be and that's when the players understand that then they'll start listening and they start understanding so, so let's flip the question around just a little bit is there anybody who you coached who made it to the majors to take pride in saying I really helped him and maybe I, have, I was the one deciding factor in giving him the push that got him to the major leagues well, you got to remember, I was coaching with the Padres, okay? So <laughs> there's not a whole lot of guys. Yeah. Um, you know, I had Logan Forsyth. I had Corey Kluber. Um, Corey Kluber, I would say, would be the big one. Um, obviously, I'm a hitting coach, but Corey Kluber was dominant. He had great stuff, and he had like a 5 ERA or whatever it was. And I told him that the, the Dodgers, I think it was um, John Valentine, John Valentine, Mm-hmm. He used to play with the Red Sox. So he was managing with the, with the uh, Dodgers, and this team sucked. But they killed Corey Kluber. I mean killed him. Well, there was, I told him, I said, there's no doubt that, Bob, or that John, he knows you're tipping your pitches. And he's like, I'm not tipping my pitches. I see it all the time. Like, I'm telling you, you don't think so, but I'm telling you, that guy who's a major league guy forever, he knows you're tipping his pitches, and your players know it. There's no way a team that's hitting 240 rakes you like that, not with your stuff. So um, I actually got permission from the Padres to sit in the stands, like the why he started. And I swear, after like eight pitches, I saw it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I went and told him, and he didn't believe it. And I was videotaping. I had a little flip share camera, and I showed him. I said, he goes, how can you see that? I'm like, well, that's what big leaguers do. That's what video – I said, that's what – we do. And uh, obviously, he's pretty freaking good. But, uh, I mean, there's no way that these guys that were hitting 220 could lay off that slider. I mean, come on. And uh, I just couldn't believe it. And so when I showed him the video, 
uh, obviously after that, it was pretty amazing. And of course, they traded him because that's what the Padres do. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so after a three-year run in the Independent Atlantic League, you end with the Somerset Patriots, one in which you helped guide the Pats to a league title. You head to Korea for the next career, you know, move in your career, agreeing to become a field coordinator and minor league manager for the Nexon Heroes of the KBO. Why Korea as opposed to maybe waiting for a manager's job maybe in the minors or in the Atlantic League? And does the language barrier and culture add an extra layer of difficulty to the position for you? Well, I can tell you the true answer, which would be money. (laughs) Um, uh, Honestly, being in Japan, I played in Japan for two years. I was kind of a player coach there at the end of my career. I was hurt, and um, that's how I got the job in Korea. They interviewed me. I told them the things that I liked about Asian baseball and the things that I didn't like, and I think some of the things that I could change or would hope to change. And uh, the first year there was very difficult, and it wasn't the players. It was the coaches. Um, they're old school. They, they didn't really know – basic fundamental things like cutoffs and relays, like where to position people and to try to get the coaches to get on board with you was very tough. And you're doing it through a translator. Um, this is my third year I've done it and uh, it was pretty smooth this year, but I don't hire my coaches and every year I get new coaches. Like the first month I have to train the coaches to get on board with my plan and it's not easy. It really isn't. Um, you just have to, but one thing that I do is train them to do it in my way, but then once the season starts, I let them coach. I let my pitching staff, my pitching coach, I let him. He tells because it's a developmental program, it's not like we have to get this guy so many in. It's trying to develop these guys. So I let him. We're not trying to win games. Yes, I want to win, but he tells me what pitchers coming in. I let him do his job. I let my catching coach do his job. And then we talk about after the game. I want these coaches to express themselves and teach. You know, that's what they're there for, to teach, not to do everything I say. So um, it's really turned out pretty good. I hope I'm going back next year, but I really hope they extend me because I love it. And the people are great over there. The baseball's not that good, but uh, yeah. Uh, it's frustrating. But <laughs> Lastly, it's a small country. It really is. <laughs> Lastly, you're also involved with a charity from your hometown called the Miracle League. Um, you have a great fundraiser going on now. In fact, there are only three days left for early bird pricing for the roast of Shane Spencer, which will be taking place here in New York City at Caroline's on December 1st. Joining the roasting dais will be additional Yankee favorites, Jeff Nelson, who uh, <laughs> you, you, know, you, yep. you mentioned before, yep. Tanya Sturch and, and Charlie Hayes, local comedians Kristen Carney and Patrick Schroeder. How can people get tickets for this great event, and what can they expect you know, of, of the, the dais you know, roasting you, uh, and what can they expect that night? I honestly I don't know anything about a roast. All I know <laughs> is that whatever dirt they have on me, I'm going to get ragged on, which is fine. I don't care. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes in my life, so it's all going to come out. I don't <laughs> care, um, which is fine. I actually use that as teaching moments. Like, uh, you know, I got a, I got a wet, uh, wet, wet drinking, driving with a mess. That's how I ended my career. I use that as teaching with the kids or I say kids because I'm old now, but <laughs> young pros. Like, I listened to the last time I played in the big league because I always ask, when's the last time you played in the big league? Well, when I got a DUI, which, and they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, 
that's that's what happened. I said, so you might want to take care of your career, you know. So it's it's a good learning experience. But um, as far as the roast goes, oh man, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I got myself into. Um, I know it's all for charity, so it's all going to be good. I have um, I have some rugby friends from Japan that uh, they played for the All Blacks in New Zealand. They're coming, you know, flying out to New York. Never been in New York. Uh, godparents. I, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> not for me, maybe, but just for everybody else. Uh, it's going to be great. It goes to a charity. Um, it's going to be a good time. I'm looking forward to it and not looking forward to it. I don't even really know what else to say about it. All right, Shane. Thanks so much for your time tonight, as well as an epic September for Yankee fans to remember forever. We look forward to maybe seeing you one day as a manager here in the majors. If you know, Even as a coach would be very cool. We really appreciate your time tonight. I appreciate it, guys, and uh, always, uh, it's always great to talk to New York people, man. It's just passionate, and I love it. You got it. Thanks so much. December All 1st, right. get Thanks. your tickets for Thanks, the, the roast of Shane Spencer. <laughs> Shane Spencer, the home run dispenser.